0: So when we last looked into the book of Samuel, we began to see patterns. And remember that patterns are important because the Bible can be overwhelming. But the patterns can teach us what to look for and what to think hard about. And last time, we looked back into the Song of Hannah, and the pattern we noticed was, that, was a promise that God will always work in two ways. One, he lifts up the poor and the humble and the broken, and he places them in seats of honor. And two, he works against the proud and the wicked and the enemies of God's people. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and he brings to life. He brings down to shell and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Those lines are from Hannah's song. And Hannah's song works as a key to understand the story of Samuel. It teaches us what to look out for and how to think about the characters and how to understand the work of God. And Hannah's song is clear. God works to lift up the poor, the humble and the broken, and he places them in a seat of honor, and he breaks the strength of the mighty and the proud and the wicked. For the Lord kills and brings to life, for not by might shall a man prevail. So that's the principle set out right at the outset of Samuel's story. God is always working in two directions. And we didn't really have to work hard to understand exactly how this plays out because right there on the heels of Hannah's song, we began to read the story of Samuel and Hophni and Phinehas. It's tough to imagine a priesthood more corrupt than Eli's family. They stole sacrifices. They threatened worshipers. They seduced servants at the tent of meeting. Remember, this is the meeting place of God. And every, every glutted meal and every act of adultery and every threat was a statement that God is powerless, that his name is worthless, and that his worship is futile. Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are the religious elite and the politically powerful. They are the mighty. And God promises to tear them down in their wickedness and in their pride. But just back there in the background, faithfully serving before the ark of the Lord, is a boy. Just a boy. The son of a barren woman who cried out for rescue. Those who honor me, I will honor. Now, this is a dark moment in the history of Israel. There has always been sin. I mean, the history of the people of God is a history of rebellion against God until God intervenes. But sin like this, sin of this magnitude, is staggering. And you'd lose hope if you gazed uninterrupted at this level. Samuel's there faithfully serving. Samuel's there in a tiny little ephah. Samuel's there serving before the ark of God. Every time we take a prolonged glimpse at the corruption of Hophni and Phinehas, we're reminded that God is raising up a faithful priest. Now, our passage today works in exactly the same way. Section of Samuel from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 5 is set aside to tell the story of the destruction of the corrupt priesthood and of the defeat of Israel under the leadership of Eli. But, but our passage today splits that section in half. On the one side, we learn that Hophni and Phinehas have all that they've done to provoke the wrath of God. And on the other side, we'll see that wrath poured out on Israel. But right here at the center of this dark chapter is a great beacon of hope. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. So if you can, would you turn turn with me to Samuel 3 and let's get started. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, my son, lie down again. So Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the, Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again a third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling out as other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what, is, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do to you, and more also, if you hide anything from me, of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Okay, so right off the bat, there's a few things that we should notice. First, this text makes very clear that the state of Israel's relationship with God is bleak. Listen to what the text says about how God relates to his people at this moment. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. This is sort of an, okay, here's something you need to know type of statement. You're about to read about the Lord reaching out and speaking in a very clear and a very personal way to Samuel. A young boy who serves him and whose life is devoted to him. But the author actually goes out of his way to mention how rare this sort of thing had become. It used to be that the Lord was ever present, guiding his people through the wilderness by pillar of cloud or fire. It used to be that the Lord would speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. It used to be that the Lord would work great miracles and speak in stunning words through his servants and his judges. But now the winds have shifted. God no longer speaks regularly to his people or through his prophets. That kind of thing is rare now. And I want you to place this in the context of relationship. God often refers to his people as his children or as his bride. And in the context of relationship, this type of silence is never a good thing. It's a sign of trouble. Think think about it in terms of your own marriage or, or your relationship with your father. Sure, you argue. Sure, you push back and there's tension and you disagree. But the darkest moments are when everyone stops talking. That's when you know that this thing has gravity that's when you know you may have stepped too far and maybe have broken something. And that notion, the gravity of silence, is what is being communicated here in this passage. I want to read you for just a moment from Ezekiel 39. You don't have to turn here, but listen to it. This is God speaking. And I will set my glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see my judgment that I have executed and my hand that I have laid on him. The the house of Israel shall know I am the Lord their God from that day forward, and the nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity. Because they dealt so treacherously with me that I hid my face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and I hid my face from them. All right, one more from Amos 8. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head, and I will make it like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Behold, The days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. See, the silence of God is the sharp edge of his wrath. As the wrath of God builds towards the people of Israel, God commissions armies. And when he's angry with his people, he sends famine and sword. But after patiently awaiting their repentance for generation after generation, after rescuing his people over and over and over again, only to see them turn to gluttony and sex and idolatry, armies aren't enough. Silence is the darkest hour. The silence of God is a penalty heavier than death. And yet, the lamp had not yet gone out. The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to go dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. And Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. I want you to think about these words for a moment. Soak in them. Listen for that brilliant seed of hope the lamp. That lamp is not just a detail, everything in the Bible, every single word, every statement, Every paragraph in the Bible is there on purpose. It did not have to be there. It was chosen. That line didn't have to be there, but that's how the story turns. You've got this devastating moment in the history of Israel, wherein even the most revered, the most respected, the social and religious elite are spitting on the worship of God, and God has all but turned his face away. But lest you lose hope, know this, the lamp had not gone out yet, This is why I love the Bible. Look at that imagery. The word of God was rare in those days. There was no vision. And then the camera pans to blind Eli. Eli is a picture of fallen Israel. I mean, look at the words used here. There was no vision. And to picture that, you've got blind Eli laying in a bed. Helpless, hopeless. But then there's a lamp, a little flame. Oh, thank God for the lamp. The lamp of God had not yet gone out. How much hope is stored up in those words? Think about that lamp. Just a flame, right? But how much does that flame mean for God's people? He hasn't forgotten them. The lamp was yet burning and a young boy is lying before the ark of God. Young Samuel embodies the hope of Israel. The lamp hadn't yet flickered out and there's a servant boy faithfully attending to the things of God. The priests are ignoring them, desecrating them, but there's a servant boy faithful. And that lamp and that boy They are pictures of the steadfast, enduring, long-suffering love of God. And as that lamp burns and as that boy rests, the Lord speaks. So I want to stop for a moment and talk about the Word of God. Because this passage sort of revolves around the Word of God. And this passage says something powerful about the word of God that you'll have to take home and chew on and hopefully absorb and walk out. This passage should change your day to day. But all of that application revolves around this reference to the word of God. So if you look at the first few verses in the passage, it says the word of the Lord was rare in those days. So at this point, you should stop and ask yourself what that phrase means, the word of the Lord. Because the scriptures use the word of God or the word of the Lord to refer to a couple different things. One, prophecy or the word of God given. Exodus 15, one, after these things, the, Lord of, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. What is the word in this passage? Spoken. The word spoken through prophecy. Second, Scripture. Psalm 119. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. What word? The Torah. The Scriptures. And then 3 Jesus or the word made flesh. John 1:14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the son, only son from the father, full of grace and truth. There's the word of the Lord, i.e., God's words to Moses from the burning bush. Then there's the word of the Lord, i.e., the law handed down from generation to generation, and then there's the word The Word made flesh, Jesus. And the reason I tease that out a bit is because you can read this passage in a couple different ways depending on how you define that phrase, the Word of the Lord. So which word? Well, I think the passage itself pretty clearly lays out the answer to that question, or at least seems to. Look back in verse 1. The Word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Okay, so the word that is referred to here is vision, prophetic vision. In other words, that thing that happens when God opens up the eyes of his chosen messenger and teaches them something visually or audibly. At this moment in the history of, of the people of Israel, when their rebellion and their callous disregard for the covenant came to a head, the word of the Lord was rare, meaning that he was rarely speaking with his chosen messengers. But I I don't think we should stop there. I want to look a little bit closer because we need to understand exactly what it meant for the Lord to give his word to his prophets and exactly what that word meant for the people of Israel. I'm gonna read quickly from Exodus 24. And I'd like for you to turn there if you could because you'll need to see what what I think is a pretty straightforward example of how God gives his word and what that means for his people. So flip really quickly to Exodus 24. It's on page 65 if you've got a pew bottle. Start in verse 3. Moses came and told all the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. Okay. Read it again. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord has, has spoken we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Got it? So a few things just happened. One, Moses receives the words of the Lord. Two, Moses proclaims the words of the Lord. And three, Moses writes down the words of the Lord. He receives, he proclaims, he writes. Now the reason I wanted to read this is because it gives us a sort of template for how the word of the Lord is received by the people of God. When God visits his messenger and gives him his word, that's the beginning of a process. The word is not given to a prophet and meant to stop there, like personal devotion time. The word of God is given is not a personal message of encouragement. When God speaks, he expects that word to be proclaimed and then to be written. The people of Israel need to hear that word and not just this generation, but every generation. Now, what I'm not saying is that every single time God speaks, it's meant to be written as scripture. Sometimes God speaks to his sons or daughters personally, and those words aren't intended for all of his people. But when God speaks in order to reach and to teach his people, this is the process of that revelation. He speaks to his messenger And that messenger is expected to relay that message to his people immediately and to write that message for posterity. And within the context of the people of Israel, this is how Revelation works. And as we continue to read this passage, we find that same process on display in this this text. So if you look back at the passage, you'll notice that a good chunk of this passage relates Samuel's confusion. And this is here, I think, because it further demonstrates how remarkably blind the judge of Israel, Eli, truly is. Here's what I mean. Samuel is laying before the ark of God. This is the meeting place. God said, I'm going to meet with you here on the mercy seat. I'm going to meet with you here. And he did all the time. Samuel was literally laying in the place that Moses stood when God spoke with him face to face as with a friend. And Eli, who is the judge of Israel, literally the representative of the people before God as priest and the representative of God before the people as judge, Eli has no clue. Samuel is literally laying In the meeting place. And when he hears the words of God and he runs to Eli, who clearly did not call him, Eli should immediately get it. He should know. Because if anyone knows how God works, it should be Eli. But this happens three times before Eli thinks wait a second, Samuel's sleeping in the meeting place. Perhaps the Lord intends to meet with him. Anyway, so a good chunk of this passage is devoted to Samuel's confusion when God speaks. He hadn't yet received the word of the Lord, so this process was new to him. And Eli was no help because the sin had blinded him to the movement and the work of God. So we've got to keep moving. If you take a look at the words of God given to Samuel, you'll notice that there isn't anything here that's really new or unique. We already know that Eli's house has rejected the atoning work of God. We already know that there isn't anything but wrath left for them. So why here? Why speak to Eli one more time through Samuel? I want you to think one more time about Hannah's song. We know that God chooses to exalt those who honor him and to humble those who exalt themselves. This is how God works. He lifts up the poor and the broken and the weak, and he seats them in, seats, in the seats of princes, but the proud and the mighty are brought low. So here, though, we learn that God sometimes uses the poor and the broken and the humble as the instrument to humble the proud. The son of barren Hannah is the tool that God uses to humble proud Eli young David, the shepherd boy, he picks up river stones and he slings them at a giant. And those stones and that young shepherd boy are the tools that the Lord uses to humiliate that giant who's mocking the God of Israel. He uses the humble and the weak and the poor and the foolish to humble the proud and the strong, and the rich, and the wise. But that shouldn't surprise us. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your callings, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who who became for us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification as redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For not by might shall man prevail, So Samuel, the servant boy, is sent to proclaim the wrath of God against the corruption of Eli's house. And what unfolds from this point follows the process of God's revelation that we just discussed. Samuel receives the words of God. Samuel proclaims the words of God. Samuel writes down the words of God. Look back at the passage. In verse 10 through 14, we learn that God came and stood before Samuel and spoke to him the words of a prophecy. And after receiving that word, Samuel repeats the words of the prophecy to Eli. That's step one and that's step two. And we know all of this because it's written down for us to read. That's step three. Word given, word proclaimed, word written down. So after Samuel is given the word of the Lord, and after he proclaims that word to Eli, the text shifts. And this is where we need to focus our time. We begin to see that God has chosen Samuel, the son of Baron Hannah, to renew his word and his work among the people of God. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. The word of the Lord, which was rare, while the people of Israel were under the stewardship of Eli, is now disseminating through Israel. And Samuel is the tool by which the Lord is renewing his relationship with his people. I mean, if you followed the words and you got out an ancient Israel map, literally, Samuel's reputation is spreading all the way north and all the way south. As a prophet, God's speaking to his people through a prophet. Can you imagine, can you imagine taking your family and packing up and lugging it all the way to sacrifice only to be mocked and threatened, only to keep your kids close so that the priests don't do something terrible? Can you imagine the state of hopelessness and then all of a sudden you hear the rumors? There's a prophet, the Lord speaking through his prophet, the word of the Lord is here? I need to taste. I, I want to trace the shadow here. Remember that the story of Samuel is written to teach the people of God about a coming Messiah. And Samuel himself plays a special role. I'm going to read you something from a German biblical scholar that I found extraordinarily helpful. I'm not going to read it in German. I couldn't. I don't know German. In these three chapters, Samuel appears as a man who has been associated with the sanctuary from his youth, who has grown up and gained his experience in the priestly service, and who is destined to become, in reality, the true priest in Israel. He succeeds to this office, however, only through the revelation of the word accorded to him. In this way, he unites the priestly office with the prophetic vocation. He becomes the spiritual leader of his people, and that means that he receives a public, indeed a political status. By now, it is clear that there is not a man like him and hasn't been a man like him since the days of Moses. Samuel should be regarded in this light. Joshua was Moses' successor, the servant of God, but he is never called a prophet, nor is he a priest. Here is more than a Joshua. Here, too, we have something more than the prophets of later times who stood in the midst of the people as spokesmen of God, but in other respects were still on the periphery. Samuel unites in his person the three offices of Christ who is to come, prophet, priest, king. And it's no wonder that the shadow of this particular figure falls over the books of Samuel which bear his name. Nor is it by chance that in this passage which describes in the passage which describes the growth of the boy Jesus, Luke two forty-two, we find the same words which describe the growth of young Samuel. And the thanksgiving of the mother of Jesus also makes use of words of the thanksgiving of the mother of Samuel. The Bible regards him as being to a special degree one of the forerunners of Christ and does so With justification. That's powerful. Samuel is a forerunner of Jesus. When we look at Samuel we're supposed to see a shadow and that shadow, prophet, priest, king, kingmaker, that shadow is supposed to teach us what the Messiah is like. Christ's shadow falls on the life of Samuel and we are intended to see in Samuel an outline of the coming king, who is at the same time prophet and priest. Also of note, on a different level, the inscription on the front cover of the book I just referenced reads, Brian Walker, 18 May, 1986. Let's all thank God for preserving Brian in his old age. Now the reason I've spent so much time trying to understand how the word of God should be understood is because this passage ends with a powerful statement. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Now that is a significant statement. How did the Lord reveal himself? How? I mean, this, this didn't have to be here. The text could have read, and the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh, period, into sentence, right? I mean, that's, it implies as much earlier when it says the Lord came and stood, calling. So why go further? Why make explicit, and the Lord appeared, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord. Why? The word of the Lord was given, and the word of the Lord was proclaimed, and the word of the Lord was written down. Why take time to clarify that God revealed himself to Samuel by the word of the Lord? Why? Because every eye that reads that statement is currently gazing into the God-revealing word of the Lord." Look, the reader who follows this story is going to yearn jealously to know God as intimately as Samuel knew God, right? You can't read these words without thinking, what would that be like? To, to know God so well, to speak to him? what if God came and stood, revealed himself to me like this? What would it be like to walk with him so closely? If you're reading the story of Samuel and you know anything about God, you hunger for this type of relationship. That kind of intimacy, though, is impossible, right? Knowing God like that is unimaginable. I mean, maybe for a select few in the history of redemption, but not me. And then you read these words. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. How did he reveal himself? By the word. What? Hang on, wait. I'm, I'm holding. <laughs> I'm holding the word. I'm holding it in my hands. I'm reading it right now. Does that, does that mean? I mean, could Could I? That last statement is like telling a story about a guy who won the lottery and then attaching a blank check to the last page. What would would that be like? God. All the money I needed. What would that be like? (gasps) Right? Look, when Samuel turns to the people And he proclaims that, when he proclaims the words of God, how should the people respond? Well, that's great, Samuel, that God has revealed himself to you. We'd like to know God, too. So let's hope and pray that he speaks directly with us also. No, of course not. The word of the Lord has been given, past tense. Their role is to receive it and to obey it and to know the Lord by it. And they know that's the case. It's right there in the text. All Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. Because the people know that when the Lord Jesus to speak a messenger, he does so to reveal himself by his word to all of his people. This is how God works. This is how he reveals himself by the word when it's spoken, when it's proclaimed, and when it's written. It's the word of the Lord that does the revealing, regardless of how it's received. And a lot of people could read this passage and say, well, that's super cool. The Lord reveals himself by his word. So let's pray and ask the Lord to work among his people and to move them to prophecy so that we can know the Lord more intimately. To know the Lord, we must receive the word of the Lord. And to receive the word of the Lord, we must be given visions or prophecy. That is not what this text is saying. Yes, this passage is a great beacon of hope for the people of God. Yes, this passage is teaching you that the word of the Lord is God's tool to teach his people what he is, who he is what he is like, and, and how he relates. But the word of the Lord has been given. It has been proclaimed. And it has been written down. We have it. You have it. Right now, right there in your hands, you've been reading it all morning. Every word, every single word contained within the book that you're holding is the word of the Lord, given by God in order to reveal who he is and what he is like and how he moves and how he will rescue his people. Read it. Plead with the Lord to reveal himself and read it. Yes, you should read the words of Samuel and plead with the Lord that he'd reveal himself by his word. But when you finish pleading, don't sit there in a haze waiting for some vision or waiting for some dreamlike state wherein you're lifted to the heavens. No, (laughs) plead with God to reveal himself by his word and then open it. Because that's the word of the Lord. Do you want to know God? I mean, that's an honest question. Your default shouldn't just be, well, yeah. That's a, it's a proposition that you should consider with gravity. But do you want to know him? Do you hunger for the type of intimacy, that type of relationship with God? Open the book, open the word and read it. That's how he reveals himself. the word. The word is right there, and God has given that word to teach his people what he is like and how he is moving. So the application of this passage isn't primarily to pray for prophecy, though that is certainly something we are commanded to earnestly seek. The application of this passage is to open the word of the Lord and to plead that God would reveal himself through that word just like he did for Samuel. And look, that's beautiful, and it's stunning, and it's a picture of God's grace and mercy that we can, but let me do you one better. Turn to Hebrews chapter one. In the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. If you find that hunger to know God, Yes, open the Word. Open it. But I'm going to give you a hint. The Word is pointing in a direction. And the direction that every single letter of this book is pointing towards is the Word made flesh. If you want to know what God's like, Jesus is what God's like. Hope in Him. Run to Jesus, who is the final Perfect revelation of God period forever this book every word of this book this is how the Lord reveals himself and as he reveals himself you're going to get a sketch of Jesus so yes pray for revelation and then find it in Christ who has bought his people with his blood we're going to celebrate that this morning